Hello, we're the Cryptic Code. We're your hosts, Harmon, Melissa, <laughs> Brad. And you might have noticed that sadly JMP, JP and Kenzie are absent. No worries, they'll be back next episode. In their place, we actually have two special guests here to discuss cryptids, aliens, and generally anything spooky. And possibly curse a lot. Do you guys want to introduce yourselves? Here you go. I already threw myself off by saying your name. <laughs> um, I'm Alyssa. I'm Harmon's bestie. Hello. Um, and I'm one of the co-hosts of the podcast Strange History. And Harmon actually was just on, wow, it was like about two episodes ago, I believe, was a guest on our podcast. Yeah. Hi, um, I'm Brad and I'm an alcoholic. This is actually an elaborate intervention. I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> I'm also the uh, the co-host of Strange History. I have no fun facts about myself. I'm not in school, so you don't get fun facts about me and my major. Now, this is actually our second crossover. <laughs> uh, as you mentioned, Alyssa, I guest star on one of your episodes of Strange History talking about the Beast of Javudan. Now, today I have something kind of similar. Another mystery of history featuring a creature that would rampage across a mighty empire and throw an entire population into panic. But for this story, we're actually hopping the pond to the Misty Isle of England. More specifically, London. Oh yes, the island of London. If you hear a loud whap, uh, that's because I'm being Brad's ass. <laughs> the year was 1837. The Industrial Revolution was in full swing. And the advent of steam power had shaped London into a metropolis of steel and smoke. Close to two million people filled the crowded streets. The London and Greenwich Railway had just opened, an impressive feat of civil engineering with over 60 million bricks used in its construction. It opened a line for easy transportation across the city, yet not everything was rainbows and sunshine. The space taken up by the rail displayed massive swaths of people. Very quickly, the story of industrialization was becoming one of haves and have-nots. The changes brought on by the dawn of mechanization were not all good. Being so overpopulated, the city slums were filled to the brim with hundreds of thousands of urchins and workers living in crowded boarding houses. The factories that kept England's economy turning were fueled by the back-breaking labor of poorly paid workers, many of whom were young children brought in from workhouses or even orphanages. Out from the great chimneys, black fumes choked the sky. The city's gutters and sewers drained into the Thames River, encompassing everything in a constant smell of filth and sewage. It was through these smog smothered streets that one Charles Dickens would often stroll in the evenings as he brainstormed his books. He had actually just published Oliver Twist that year, who has painted a grim portrait of life on the streets for so many of the forgotten children. So, uh, you all are history majors, um, not history podcasters. Uh, do you know anything about London this time? Any like context you want to add? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, the city of London actually expanded so quickly that the British government didn't have time to build houses, like at all. The uh, population of London almost tripled in less than six months after they opened their first steel mill, and as smaller communities around Greater London began getting their own steel mills, their own coal mines, their own iron factories, and things of that nature. Everything just continued to expand. The city of London ended up basically soaking in all other smaller communities around it and just becoming one massive super city. 
they also didn't have enough constables or police forces to maintain control. So basically, you're living in like steampunk Gotham without Batman. Without Batman. Which actually is going to loop back into the story we're about to tell. Oh, yeah, we're going to talk about Bruce Wayne. But uh, it actually is going to become important because the Metro Police had just started up and the most successful branch of the police in this London was the uh, Bow Street Runners. But there's only about a dozen of them and they worked as like private detectives. Now, another thing to mention before you move on, you did talk about how there were all the workers, yeah? What I find really, really interesting is that you could actually find unions in the city of London. They're not unions like we know, like you're not going to get better benefits, better pay and breaks. They were actually all gang ran and gang orchestrated. And these gangs of workers would sometimes take over rival factories to push people out of their jobs so that their gang could have more territory. Wow, okay. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned there's one big metropolis area, which I think now is a good point to point out that uh, in this story, we're gonna be mentioning a lot of villages that are all just parts of the outskirts of London, kind of like how New York City is split up into Manhattan, the Bronx, Queens, stuff like that. So I'm gonna be saying a bunch of different names, but most of them are just part of London, at least to my knowledge. No, they're, yeah, they're basically just subsects of the city of London. It would be like looking at Charleston, like West Virginia, and saying, you know, this is the city of Charleston, and inside the city of Charleston, you have like Corridor H and Corridor G, and over there's Dunbar, and there's Cross Lanes. You can think of it all just as one big area, just broken down into a few different area codes. Anything you want to add? Um, I feel bad that I don't have anything to add because I took an entire British history course in college, and I did pull up my notes to try and find something real quick. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have nothing. No worries, no worries. Yet, unbreathable air, undrinkable water, and poor work conditions weren't the extent of their concerns. You see, London was caught in a veritable epidemic of paranormal prowlers. The Hammersmith ghost, supposedly the spirit of a suicide victim, was known to stalk the streets and attack people. The fear it caused was so real, it led to an actual murder in 1804, when an excise officer named Francis Smith shot and killed one Thomas Milboy, a local bricklayer mistaken for the ghost because of his white work uniform. It actually set the precipice for British self-defense laws all the way up until 1984. Just because he was wearing white? The dude was so freaked out, he saw him, told him to stop, and then just shot him. Yeah. Okay. Alright. London was stewing in fear and dread. No one knew who or what lurked in the shadowy alleyways where the streetlights did not reach. Those same shadows that would one day host the infamous serial killer, Jack the Ripper. But for now, the stage was set for a different Jack to grip the whole of London and a terror that would last over a century. With this preamble out of the way, we open to the scene of Clapham Commons, a large park in the southern half of the city. The young woman, Mary Stevens, was making her way to her servant job in Lavender Hill one October day. As she passed the opening of an alleyway, cloaked in darkness, a figure suddenly leapt out and attacked her. The creature tore her dress with a set of iron claws. Mary would later describe his touch as, quote, cold and clammy as of those of a corpse, end quote. Struggling to escape her attacker's clutches, she screamed out for help, and help did arrive. 
Passerbys did come to her aid, causing the creature to flee. And despite extensive searching, no sign of her attacker could be found. But it would return. The next day, the same figure jumped out in front of a carriage, causing it to crash and severely injuring the driver. But this was just the beginning of what would become a reign of terror, masterfully manufactured by a maestro of madness, who the newspapers would come to call Spring Heeled Jack. Have either of you heard of Spring Heeled Jack before? I have. I haven't. Okay, uh, but you know about him. Well, for a long period of time, they thought Spring Heeled Jack was actually a demon. I know that much. He attacked a lot of different people. I think of police officers, military engagements. He was a giant jackass who could leap small buildings with a single bound. Very similar to like, I don't know, a steampunk Superman without the cape. Or the morals. That's pretty concise. Superman has the morals. Oof, hot take. Twitter's gonna be mad about that. That's fine. <laughs> but, uh, that's actually a pretty concise summary, but hopefully we can find a little bit more depth. So I did some real digging into this. So, real let's digging begin. is compared to fake digging? It's where you put the dirt right back in. Okay, that's fair. Yeah. Now, the figures have a bit of a revival as of late, but it's still relatively obscure. Like I alluded to earlier, he's typically overshadowed by the Ripper as the Jack who terrorizes Victorian London. For those unfamiliar, I think it'd be best to start with general description. Now, reports vary as to his appearance, but the consensus is he's typically a humanoid figure wearing a helmet, a black cloak, with a tight white shirt underneath two glowing red eyes, and a large metallic claws on one of his gloves. Imagine uh, Freddy Krueger's knife gloves. All I can think about in that description for some reason is the hash-slinging slasher Asher. from Spongebob. <laughs> like across the street in the black coat with the red eyes. Before he gets that! <laughs> it's actually not claws, they're just three really, really sharp spatulas. <laughs> Get flipped, bitch! <laughs> Spatula heel jack. It doesn't roll off the tongue. I think it does. I think it rolls really well. Now, as the name implies, his main method of vein capture is his titular ability to jump high distances, like you mentioned, Brad. One article described him as, quote, a man who, under various disguises, would suddenly appear before the unsuspecting pedestrian, and, having nearly frightened the traveler out of his or her senses, would as suddenly disappear with terrible bounds, leaving the impression upon his affrighted victim that his satanic majesty had descended to pay him a visit in person. End quote. Sounds like Gwen sneaking up on you in the middle of a tour. That's not going to mean anything to us, listening. <laughs> it's going to mean something to you guys. <sighs> More signs of Jack came in the following months from all across the London metro area. According to an article written by the Phillipsburg Herald in 1884, the pattern goes as such. Barnes, where he appeared as a white bull. East Shin, where he appeared as a white bear. Richmond, and, but took a more solidified appearance when he appeared in Ham, Kingston, and Hampton, wearing his iconic spring boots, eye gauntlet, and brass armor. He was even said to use boots to escape from a hunting party, leaping effortlessly over a massive wall. More shines came from Teddington, Twickenham, Hounslow, and Sion Park. If these names don't sound real, uh, that's because it's England. <laughs> They're not. Anyway, in Easterworth, he attacked a carpenter named Jones, severely beating the man down. Jones also added the peculiar detail that Jack was wearing steel armor instead of brass and now wore red shoes, which he presumably noticed by getting the shit kicked out of him. 
Strangely enough, Jones stated that as he was struggling with the creature, two other, quote, ghosts appeared to assist Jack. I assume these apparition accomplices to be named uh, Moonshoes Martin and Bouncy Boots Benjamin. But that's just me speculating. No, it's absolutely true. It's in the historical documents. He then moved on to Erksbrigt, Hanwell, and Brentford. In Ealing, he fried a local blacksmith so badly the man was rendered bedridden. Not everyone was easy pickings, though. According to the same article, quote, At Hammersmith, he found an opponent in the shape of a valorous laundress, to whom he appeared in the form of an immense baboon, six feet high, <laughs> with enormous eyes and arms of extensive length. And in strict keeping with his animal appearance, he grunted like a hyena. I should point out, it's not a hyena, it's an hyena, because England. This courageous woman, after an infectual attempt to avoid her uncanny visitor, determined to give him battle, and flew at him with such a fury that he was glad to give up the contest. I can just imagine this, like, four-foot-eleven woman carrying a basket of laundry, seeing this monkey and being like, mm, Not today, Satan. Come get some. <laughs> I hope that turned out well in the recording. <laughs> You're not even going to be able to hear it, it's just you leaning in. <laughs> Eventually, the creature did re receive official resignation as on January 9th, the Lord Mayor of London, one John Corwin, made a public appearance where he read an anonymous letter he had received. It read as such, quote, to the right honorable Lord Mayor. My lord, the writer presumes that your lordship will kindly overlook the liberty he has taken in addressing a few lines on a subject which, within the last few weeks, has caused much alarm in the neighboring villages within three or four miles of London. It appears that some individuals, parentheses, of, as the writer believes, the higher ranks of life, in parentheses, have laid a wager with a mischievous and foolhardy companion, name as yet unknown, that he does not take upon himself the task of visiting many of the villages near London in three different disguises of a ghost, a bear, and a devil. Moreover, that he will not dare to enter gentlemen's gardens for the purpose of alarming the inmates of the house. The wager, however, been accepted, and the unmanly villain has succeeded in depriving seven ladies of their senses. At one house, he rang the bell, and the servant came to opening the door. This worse than brute stood in no less dreadful figure than a spectre, clad most perfectly. The consequence was that the poor girl immediately swooned, and has never from that moment been in her senses. But upon seeing any man screams most violently, take him away. There are two ladies, which your lordship will regret to hear, who have husbands and children, and who are not expected to recover, but are likely to become burdens upon their families. So are they, like, falling in love with this creature no they're going crazy okay that he's... i was just using swooning in that sort of context i was like it, it, they meant like did they really want to be like dicked down by this homie and they just said fuck their husbands like <laughs> in all honesty if the dude has legs powerful enough to jump an entire building i'm just uh, saying <laughs> spring powered penis <laughs> you never know spring dick jack <laughs> Oh, jeez. It goings like a door stopper. Stop. Um, for fear that your lordship... <laughs> for fear that your lordship, I imagine the writer exaggerates, he will refrain from mentioning other cases, if anything, more melancholy than those he had already written. The affair has been going on for some time. 
and, strange to say, the papers are still silent on the subject. The writer is very unwilling to be unjust towards any man, but he has reason to believe that they have the whole history at their fingers' ends, but through interested motives are induced to remain silent. It is, however, high time that such a detestable nuisance should be put a stop to, and the writer feels assured that your lordship, as the chief magistrate of London, will take great pleasure in exerting your power to bring the villain to justice. Hoping your lordship will pardon the liberty I have taken in writing, I remain your lordship's most humble servant. Signed, a resident of Peckham. Listening to you read that, the only thing I can think about was, for some reason, Jack Sparrow speaking to Nordingham at the end of the first movie. It just sounds, the entire thing sounds like something Johnny Depp would completely and totally ad-lib. You remember this as a day you almost caught. Captain Springheel, Jack Sparrow. <laughs> now, the Lord Mayor expressed some criticisms. Uh, he's quoted saying, extraordinary if true. So, but stated that fought, he thought the police would be more than capable of protecting the people of London. He also speculated that despite the writer referring to themselves as male, the writer was actually a woman because it was, quote, written in a very beautiful hand. One man from the crowd admitted that he had heard similar stories from their servant girls. According to most modern sources, the Lord Mayor presented the letter somewhat jokingly and didn't take the matter seriously. He expressed belief that the writer was a woman framed by a regular burglar, but that the Spring-Heeled Jack was just a case of a regular criminal being exaggerated by terrified witnesses. He would come to regret that belief when Spring-Heeled Jack would actually ramp up his attacks. On February 20th, 1838, Jane Aslove was in her house in Old Fort, a village on the outskirts of London. It was around 8.45 p.m. when she was summoned to her front door by a violent knocking. She cracked the door open and peeked outside, spotting a tall figure in a black coat by their gate. Hello, she called towards the towering man. What's the matter? The figure identified himself as a police officer ordering, quote, for God's sake, bring me a light, for we have caught Spring-Heeled Jack in the lane. Jane grabbed a lit candle and quickly hurried out to the man. As he handed it to him, he snatched it up, throwing off his cloak to reveal a monstrous appearance in the candle's glow. She described him as wearing a helmet and a very tight white oilskin garment, yet her eyes were truly transfixed on the creature's two burning red eyes and a mouth of blue and white flame. So he could talk? Yep. Spring-Heeled Jack was in the lane, and now she was face to face with the terror of London. Jane tried to run, but Jack snatched her, putting her into a headlock as his clawed hand scratched her repeatedly. Finding a desperate, hysterical strength in her panic, she managed to wrestle out of his hold and run towards her house. But just as he reached the door, Jack caught her his talons cutting into her neck and arms, as well as slicing off a chunk of hair. Thankfully, the cuts were not lethal. And just at the nick of time, Jane's sister reached out and pulled her into the house while the creature turned to flee. They reported their encounter to the investigating magistrate, which is basically like a proto-detective, at the Lambeth Street Police Office. She presented her report to the court, and her father added in an insightful observation uh, that the Times report as, quote, Mr. Alsop also said it was perfectly clear that there is more than one ruffian connected with the outrage, as the fellow who committed the violence did not return for his cloak, 
but scampered across the fields. So there must have been some person with him to pick it up, end quote. So yeah, when you think about that, uh, Jack's actually getting a lot more violent now. And this is actually one of the most famous encounters with him. Does he have like minions? We're actually going to get to that. There's a big theory that Spring Hill Jack wasn't one person, but I kind of like Ghostface and Scream is a group of dudes all donning this costume. But we'll get to that later. Okay. Perhaps spurred on by the Lord Mayor's statement, the police took the report seriously and launched two separate investigations. One was launched by the Metropolitan Police, while the other was put in the hands of a man hired directly by the Lambeth Street Police Office, James Aaliyah. A member of the Bow Street Patrol, which is like a spin-off of the Bow Street Runners, the difference is Patrol had uh, more members and they were on horses. Now, Officer Leah was known as one of the best detectives in London. After winning fame solving the highly sensationalized and publicized Red Barn murder case, which is its own vaguely paranormal story where murder got solved because of a dream. <laughs> he began his search almost immediately, as in within 24 hours of Jane presenting to the court. With the help of one Mr. Young, superintendent of the Metro Police K Division, they managed to present the court with two suspects on February 28th. A bricklayer named Payne and a carpenter named Milbank were identified by the testimony of one James Smith, a wheelwright, basically a wheelmaker for wagons. Smith heard James screams and rushed in that direction to help. As he's headed towards the Alsoff house, he came across Payne and Millbrook headed the other way. He also stated that Melbank wore a white shooting jacket, which they believe might have been the oil skin garment Jane noted. Eventually, the two were released as other witness, another witness named Richardson testified he saw a boy and young man with a black coat also heading the, uh, away from the Alsop house. What makes his testimony compelling is that he heard one of them say something about chuckling about Spring Hill Jack being in the lane. And that's important because at this point, no one knew Spring Hill was involved in this. Only Jane. That wouldn't be public information yet. Meaning that they had to know it was him and they would probably be the attackers. Sadly, no one was brought to trial for the attack on Jane Haslam. And soon after, Jack would strike again. That very night, February 28th, Lucy Scales and her sister were walking home after visiting their brother in Limehouse. They were passing by Green Dragon Alley, Cool ass name for Halloway. <laughs> There's a pub there, by the way, that influenced the uh, Green Dragon pub from the Lord of the Rings. Ooh. It is still in open with the longest serving bars in the world. Too bad Aragorn wasn't here to stop them. I feel like Aragorn would have just been okay with all of this. Yeah, he's a good dude. He was low profile. Now, while they were passing the Green Dragon alley, they saw a figure lurking in the alley's entrance. As they neared, he threw off his cloak to expose his hard visage. He then spat, quote, a quantity of blue flame directly into Lucy, Lucy's face. She was blinded either temporarily or permanently by the flames and fell to the ground and would suffer seizures for hours. As her sister tried to help her, their attacker disappeared. Their brother, hearing them, ran towards them and heard them, uh, hurried them into the safety of his house. Lucy's sister described their attacker as tall, dressed like a gentleman, and carrying the same lantern used by the police. James Lear would later investigate the site of this attack, 
deducing that Jack intensely chose it due to how well it was set up for an ambush. Sadly, Springfield Jack became an easy scapegoat for the scum of London, and a wave of imitators would take up, take up Jack's mantle. Also on February 28th, very busy day, or March 1st, depending on to some reports, a man in the White Lion Love pub. Also on February 28th, a very busy day, or March 1st, according to some reports, a man at the White Lion Pub would claim to be spring Jack before attacking the female owner with a club. Thankfully, he missed, and while I can't find any details, I assume he was either arrested or at least chased off. In Lincoln Inn's field, a man would don a cloak and just slap a random woman in public. <laughs> They said, fuck these bitches. I'm gonna be Spring Hill Jack for Halloween this year. I'm just gonna smack the fuck out of everyone I see. A man named James Priest was sentenced to hard labor after attacking a woman under the guise of Spring Hill Jack in East Wilson. And a kid named Daniel Grenville in Kinnish Town fashioned himself a Spring Hill Jack costume using blue paper at the mouth instead of flames, but it was like a reflective paper. Uh, the police just let him off of a warning to, like, cut that shit out. <laughs> the weirdest case was a man in South End who attacked a woman while she was on a cliffside and didn't throw her off, but just stuffed fucking grass in her mouth, then ran away. He was advocating for vegetarian rights. That's right. <laughs> the attack was attri attributed. Fuck to Jack despite having no real connections. It was just, he became this urban legend. He was this ghost you could just blame anything on. Oh no, I'm poor because Jack stole my money. Yeah. I would like to take a moment to discuss the kind of cultural impact Spring Hill Jack had on London. Strangely enough, despite being a monster quite feared by people, he also became a fascination of fiction writers at the time. He became a major icon of pop culture and would star in stories printed in Penny Dreadfuls. For those who don't know, Pain Dreadfuls were cheap novels printed on low-quality paper and sold as inexpensive, disposable entertainment. They earned their name by typically featuring violent, exploitative stories meant to appeal to the lowest common denominator and causing wealth of pain. But even weirder, he wasn't relegated strictly to the role of villain, and has even been portrayed as a mysterious anti-hero. Many of these Penny Dreadfuls showed him as a supernatural avenger, doing violence to those who did violence themselves, and using his paranormal powers to terrify criminals. So like, a uh, Victorian Deadpool? I was gonna say, in all reality, he was a proto-Batman, because he was depicted as like having bat wings that he used to jump on people. That's fair. But listen to all the shit this man has supposedly done. Sticking grass in someone's mouth, slapping a woman in the street, this is Deadpool. Yeah. Actually, no, this isn't even Deadpool. This is just Ryan Reynolds in an old <laughs> I think I saw that in Free Guy. I think so. Ryan Reynolds, if you are listening to this podcast, please, please, I need you to come slap me just one time. Give us a shout out on Twitter. I just want money. I'm not going to lie. Ryan Reynolds, I just want to know what you listen to the podcast. <laughs> but when you start talking about all the stuff Spring Hill Jack did, gave me like the visual image of 
uh, Robert Pattinson's Batman just like stuffing grass in the Riddler's mouth like, what did you do? I am vengeance. <laughs> but yeah, he was a pro Batman and possibly could have inspired the famous DC detective character. One of Jack's most infamous crimes would come in 1845 on Jan on November 12th. Hey, that's my birthday. Oh yeah. A young prostitute named Maria Davis was supposedly attacked by a spring-heeled Jack on a bridge near Jacob's Island. He scratched at her mercilessly and then threw her off the bridge where she fell into a sewer and drowned. Ugh. Fortunately, this story seems to have been invented wholesale. It was first mentioned in the Legend and Bizarre Crimes of Spring Hill Jack by Peter Hanning, which cites no sources. No newspaper article, police report, or autopsy mentioning one Maria Davis could be found either. So it could be true, but most likely it's not. His next big sighting would be in 1877, so a big of a jump. This began in 1837, and now we're just jumping ahead 40 years. But that's going to bring us to a military camp in Alderston, Garrison located in southeast England. It was August, and a lone soldier stood on the northern edge of the camp. The summer heat was sweltering, even after dark. He had to wipe beads of sweat from his brow. As his wary eyes scanned the horizon, he noted a figure approaching from the tree line. Who's there? Friend or foe? Stop right there! Yet the figure did not stop, but instead broke out into a sprint towards the soldier. With shaky, frightened hands, he struggled to ready his rifle. By the time he cocked the hammer and leveled his musket, the demon's face was merely a foot from his. Before he could pull the trigger, the monster pulled back his hand and slapped him across the face <laughs> several times. The soldier, presumably shaking with fear or quite possibly profound confusion, fired. But his shot did not find its target, and Spring Hill Jack was able to disappear, bounding into the darkness. He literally just ran up and went, woo, 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 and then slapped him, and then ran away. I loved your Swinburne impersonation. No, yeah, that was good. That was really good. Thank you. Strangely enough, this wasn't the only reported instance of Jack harassing Aldershot. The March 17th issue of Shadrick's Aldershot Sandhurst Military Gazette from the same year reported a very similar incident at the North Camp, uh, Century Camp. The paper directly links the weird happenings to Spring Hill Jack and claimed that two separate soldiers saw it in the same night. Yet another incident of Jack attacking a late night watchman was mentioned in Lord Erst Hamilton's memoirs, 40 years on, stating that he was spotted around the camp in 1878, so a year later. He even put forth a possible subject, a suspect, a soldier named Lieutenant Alfrey, but I couldn't find why he thought it was him. Wasn't this the same time that Livingston was disappearing in Africa? That's a great question. What if it's him? What if it just disappeared? He's spring Jack. Well, Livingston did go batshit insane. And Africa was a cover story? Maybe. But no, I mean, like, he went missing for like seven years and he was a national hero there were people petitioning the british government to bring this guy back i wonder if this guy attacking soldiers was just some sort of weird protest maybe 
No, this was in 77. He disappeared between, um, like, the 1860s, and then he was, quote-unquote, found in 1871. He died in 1873. Okay. Never mind. Uh, another theory shot down. Damn. Damn you, Spring Hill Jack. <laughs> he killed him. There's a string of other Spring Hill Jack sightings. In 1877, he was chased by a mob in Newport Arch, where he escaped via jumping. The following year, he was spotted atop the St. Francis Xavier's Church. And finally, he was seen in 1904. He was spotted by hundreds of witnesses on William Henry Street, or at least that's a story put forth by a newspaper article in 1967. Yet, it might have been a case of mistaken identity in the game of telephone that urban legends tend to become. A woman who lived around the area at that time named Mrs. Pierpont stated that the story had been an exaggerated mutation of a real event following a figure known as Liverpool Jack, a mentally unstable man who would scream that his wife was the devil from rooftops, and when the police tried to stop him, he would just jump from one to another. You know what? Me too, bud. It's a vibe. The most recent supposed sighting of old Spring Hill Jack was actually in 2012 in Banstead. Scott Martin and his family are riding home in a taxi around 10.30 p.m. on February 14th. As they're going down a bypass, they spot a dark figure with no distinguishable features. Quote, we didn't pay much attention until he started crossing over to our side of the road. Next thing, he jumped over the center fencing in the road and ran across, two, ran across our two lanes. On the side of our road is a bank easily 15 feet in height, and the figure crossed our road, climbed this bank, and was gone from sight in all about two seconds. That was just someone in a Batman costume. Yeah. It, is it was marketing. <laughs> what? It's 2012. What, what movie? Was that Dark Knight? I think that, that was Killing movie? Joke. Now, it is worth knowing that uh, it was the family themselves that drew the connection to Spring Hill Jack. It was Dark Knight Rises in 2012. That's exactly what it was. <laughs> you merely adopted the jumping. I was born in it. <laughs> That's all you're getting. <laughs> Those are really good, too. Thank you. I did it a lot as a kid. I was very obnoxious. <laughs> and that hasn't stopped. <laughs> And so the tale of Spring Hill Jack draws to a close. Yet, even as the swift footage phantom has faded, perhaps for the last time into the fog-filled streets of London town, the mystery remains. One that has puzzled and baffled investigators for centuries, whose answer dodges and evades just as the cloaked beast darkened the alleyways of the old city. So, what was Spring Hill Jack? Our first theory, is the one proposed by the writer of the letter sent to the Lord Mayor, that spring Jack was simply a human dying in a costume as part of some elaborate events. This same theory was proposed by a council of civilian investigators who believe spring Jack was actually a group of young men all wearing costumes with the end goal of a bet being to frame 40 people to death. Regards of what was the supposed bet's existence, one figure in particular would become the prime suspect for these attacks. One Henry de la Porte Beersford, the third Marquise of Waterford. 
He was an Irish nobleman who earned a notorious reputation for being a drunk and doing some really frat bro shit. For example, have you guys ever heard the phrase painting the town red? Yeah. Yeah. For those who don't know, it refers to going out and having an especially disruptive party. And the Marquis of Waterford is where that phrase comes from. You see, on April 6, 1837, he and his friends arrived to Milton Morbury after a long day of drinking and fox hunting. Winning combination right there. That's not what I thought you were going to say. <laughs> A tollkeeper tried to charge them for entering into the town, but instead they took nearby bucket, uh, buckets of red paint, drenched the tollkeeper in it, and trapped him in the toll house by nailing the door shut. Oh my god. It gets worse, because they did the same thing to the police officer who tried to stop them. <laughs> it's going to get worse, because they proceeded to barge into town, smashing random things. They threw the sign of a red line in into a canal, painted another pub sign red, and wrecked several buildings including the post office. Any police they came across also got the shit beat out of them and painted red. One of his friends, however, was captured and arrested. One Edward Raynard was snatched up by the police and brought to jail. Fierce believers in the bro code, Henry and company came to save him by smashing through three different locks, beating up two guards, and threatening to Fucking kill them if they didn't let Edward out. Okay, but that's a, those are real homies. Yeah, those those, are that's real what friends. I expect from y'all. And like any true frat boy with a rich daddy, he and his friends managed to avoid legal troubles, although they did have to pay a uh, hundred pounds each. Which was a lot back then. No, yeah. Inflation, but still. <laughs> Beating up almost a dozen police officers, and he just had to pay a little bit of money. What year was this? Uh, 1837, same year Spring Hill Jack began his uh, reign of terror. Are you looking up the inflation rate? I am. Okay, so it was 100 and what? Just 100 pounds. 100, and you said 1930 or 1837? Yeah. 1837. 1837 to 2022. Now you have to convert it from pounds to... Yes, converting... <laughs> do, do. Jesus Christ, it's a $14,684.91 fine if adjusted for modern U.S. currency. But hear me out. Compared to what he did, <laughs> that's still pretty good. Definitely, he did definitely like at least a million dollars worth of damage. <laughs> Those hospital bills? But yeah. I mean, honestly, if I was a business owner and just watched this guy do all this... I would probably not even try to do anything in retaliation. Or just be like, you know what? I think I'm I think I'm gonna close for the day. Yeah. I think this is the perfect time to just go home. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. We don't want the ledger in the red. I'm going home. <laughs> yeah. So clearly this man would be totally capable of doing something this outrageous for a bet. One issue of this idea though is that Henry died in 1859. So there have to be copycats to continue Jack's antics into the late 1800s. Further, if Springhill Jack was truly a normal person, how did they achieve their paranormal aspects? Proponents of, the of this theory believed, much like an episode of Scooby-Doo, that the seemingly supernatural abilities were merely elaborate illusions. <coughs> Jack's fire breath could have been a circus trick. Y'all you know, know fire breathers. Now, the common acts in uh, circuses and similar technique could have been used here. Lucy Scales 
uh, sister did describe Jack as carrying a lamp or a lantern, which could have blown alcohol and do to create the effect. The issue is, I've never seen a fire breather use blue flame. I looked through a bunch of them, and it's always your typical red fire. Right. So I don't know how you would achieve uh, blue and white flame instead. That would just be a chemical concoction. Maybe. If I had to be a specific temperature, it would be blue. No, you can change the color of flame depending on what chemicals you use as a catalyst. Okay. The next issue is his eponymous jumping skills. Many who believe Jack was just a person theorized that he was able to achieve his outlandish acrobatics with the help of literal spring-heeled shoes. While this sounds plausible, all attempts to engineer these kind of jump boots by even modern designers uh, couldn't achieve what Jack did and only resulted in broken ankles. So I looked it up just out of curiosity, and um, to create a blue flame, you'd need copper chloride. Copper chloride? Mm -hmm. Okay. And you can find copper chloride in a lot. But in would you lot. be able to find it in 1837? Maybe he was a chemist. It really is just the Marquis of Waterford. He would be rich enough to afford that. No, yeah, I don't see why not. If he can just pay to have an entire town renovated after a drunken pool again. It does not say when copper chloride was discovered, but it is a naturally occurring chemical compound. Maybe. Yeah. So maybe that's the trick behind it. But that still leaves the spring-heeled boots, the jump in. It just, even when modern engineers try to make it, they couldn't do it without hurting themselves. What if there wasn't boots? Maybe. What if it was just cables and wires? He did all of this at night. You could string those over rooftops. You could string them over uh, street lights. And if you had them thin enough, like circus trapeze wires, you wouldn't be able to see those. Yeah, but he would use it when he's running away from crowds. So unless he had like, really planned out, I don't see how he would have that prepared. I mean, if the man's a noble with nothing but time and money. True. Yeah, but you would have to prepare for every situation. Like Batman. Exactly, he's uh, Batman. That's I, <laughs> Jesus. I, I was terrified for a second you're gonna say jetpack. I'm actually kind of disappointed. He's just a simple man trying to make his way in the galaxy. <laughs> <laughs> so what if Jack was truly paranormal? Some believe him to be a demon. Occultism, though not as massive as it would be in the Victorian era, would be quite the fascination at the time. Perhaps some would-be sorcerer conjured up our dapper demon to vex the goody two-shoes of London. Others believe Jack was a vengeful spirit. Perhaps a man who committed suicide was one theory. Some also think he was a ghost of an executed criminal who came back for his unholy revenge. Much like the dream demon, uh, the dream haunting slasher Freddy Krueger, whose knife glove he stole. And because at least one always suggests these, some people believe Jack to be an alien. This theory was, to my knowledge, first presented in 1961 in an article of Flying Saucer Review written by Jay Venner. Part of this explanation was that Jack was an alien stranded on our planet and that his ability to leap tall walls was due to him coming from a world with high gravity. Beyond this, there's no real reason to think Jack was an alien. I, yeah, I don't... You sounded so like, and of course, people thought he was an alien. Like, I don't buy it. And it was mentioned in an article where they're trying to find examples of aliens before 1947, before the atomic age. <coughs> so when you're going looking for something, you're going to find it. Yeah. And your results aren't going to be kosher. At least in my opinion. I don't think it was an alien. Nah. 
Now, a bit more of a unique theory is that Spring-Heeled Jack fits into the niche, lesser-known categorization of phantom attackers. These are spirits typically depicted as generally humanoid, but with seemingly supernatural or spectral powers. One such example of a phantom attacker is the Mad Gasser of Matum, a supposedly sinister stalker said to pump poison gas into the homes of sleeping families. Have any of you heard of the Mad Gasser? No. Uh, there's actually <laughs> one in Virginia, too. Uh, there's actually like three different Mad Gassers. And they would just gas people in their homes, you said? Yeah, they would uh, slip little uh, hoses into through the windows. Mm. And people don't know if they're real or if it's mass hysteria. Or uh, for the Mad Gasser of Matun, there was the theory that he was an escaped German prisoner of war during World War II. And this prisoner of war wouldn't be caught until he turned himself in in the 1980s. Hmm. Yeah. So yeah, that's a thing. Oh, well that's a story for another day, maybe another crossover, intent, maybe, possibly, if you guys want me back. Uh, I wanted to share some of his other nicknames, namely the Aesthetic Prowler and the Phantom Anesthetist. I just like those names. But if y'all don't mind, I like to go off the rails a bit provide my own explanation. A wholesale Harmon original. I'm ready. I'm excited. I propose that Spring Hill Jack was not an alien, nor man in costume, nor a phantom. I believe he might have been a creature straight from the ancient folklore thrown into the industrial age. A ghoul. Huh. Ghouls? A ghoul? Shut up, you weeb. <laughs> Ghouls are a rather obscure creature, so I should explain the, for those unaware. They originate in Arabic folklore. A uh, ghoul is a pale, malnourished humanoid, often portrayed as having long, thin fingernails that resemble almost talons. So that fits in. They're considered undead, explaining how the first victim described his touch as corpse-like. And finally, Arabic folklore states that <coughs> ghouls possess the ability to shapeshift into animals, which is why you're seeing with looking like a bull, a wolf, or a baboon. And a bear. You mentioned yeah. the bear, too. But it goes deeper. Now, you might be wondering, what would a ghoul be doing in London? You see, ghouls are scavengers. They're known to lurk in cemeteries to feast on dead bodies. And London would be an ideal hunting ground. Not only does London have massive cemeteries, years of construction that discovered over 20 mass graves underneath the city streets. These mass graves were plague pits, essentially huge dumping grounds for those who died of the Black Death or other such diseases. Between those and the extensive graveyards, there would be plenty to attract a ghoul. Yet ghouls are typically thought of as subterranean creatures happy to remain underground. That's where we put our corpses after all. What would drive one to the surface? It would have to be some large, noisy project consisting of a lot of ground to be broken. Something like, oh, I don't know, the construction of the London Greenwich Railway? While it's not underground, the construction might have been large enough to drive a ghoul or perhaps a pack of ghouls out from their underground abodes. But that's all I have. Now we are left with a simple question. Do you think spring Jack was real? So, we've been on 
pretty wild journey through the ages of London. Uh, we've seen attacks, we've seen uh, people being slapped in the face, and one person ate grass. But we're left with the question of, uh, what do you think is behind all this? Do you think spring Jack was a person, a monster, or what? Do you think he was not real at all? I think when you first started, I was like, this is just a person, like, fucking with people. But when you, like, explain the goal situation, because I, I knew what a goal was, but I didn't really know what a goal was. I, I feel like that vibe, if you want to go, like, the paranormal route, I will, for the first time I think ever, go the paranormal route on this and not say that it's just a person. I think it could be a ghoul. I think you convinced me. Ghoul, ghoul, ghoul. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have to think about it logically. Ghoul, ghoul, ghoul. This is, uh, I think it's the Fae. That makes sense. Oh, oh because bears first from Ireland. Because Fae can shape shift, they cause mischief and mayhem. And I mean, what other than an evil demon fairy would have the balls to walk up and just start pimp slapping soldiers <laughs> at gunpoint? True. Yeah, that kind of makes sense. I'm kind of like, I, I'm digging the Fae explanation. And I explained why bullets didn't seem to hurt him. And why he could just jump shit. Yeah. How he was physically attacking people in the way that he was. Having no features and then having features. Yeah. Okay, so you think it was paranormal too? I think it was specifically Faye. Okay. And I think it was a ghoul, personally. That's why I put it there. That's why the whole last paragraph. <laughs> Harmon's original. <laughs> so, is this an all yes? You all think he was paranormal? I'd like to believe so. You want to believe? I want, I want to believe that it was a paranormal entity-esque. But at the same time, I think it would be so much more fun to just believe that it was a Cambridge college professor walking around because he had tenure and knew that he could do whatever the fuck he wanted to do. <laughs> Including breaking the law. Breaking the law! Breaking the law! <laughs> there was a guy named Priest in here. But yeah, I, I kind of like the idea that it was a group of people working together because that kind of makes sense to me. Mm hmm but then when you actually look at what he does, like, how would he jump away? Why would he... I don't know. It seems too crazy. There's too many things yeah. that don't make sense for yeah. this time period. And a lot of the initial investigators thought that uh, Jack wasn't really a thing. He was just like a uh, scapegoat and people were being attacked by just drunkards. But it sounds like he's too graceful to be intoxicated while he's doing this, right? Like, he's either playing out too well or it's just too coordinated for him to be like some dude just having a laugh while like drunk off his ass. Right. So, personally, I really like the ghoul idea. I like the theme of like old folklore and industrialization kind of crashing into one another. So yeah. Now, could you potentially explain the first few attacks as maybe an escaped animal? What kind of? Uh, you mean like the bull? Yeah, like the bull, the bear. There's a huge zoo right in central London. True, true. And at one point in time, wasn't someone attacked by a fucking baboon? Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, have you seen how high they can fucking jump? True, but I feel like they would have turned up at some point. You know how easy it is to lose animals from zoos? It happens all the time. No, no, I mean, like, it would die somewhere in the city and someone would come across and be like, Oh! I mean, think about it. This is the 1800s London. If you come across fresh meat, you're just going to eat it. Fair point. <laughs> Including baboons? Absolutely. It's England. They ate mummies, Harmon! That is a really good or <laughs> cruel twist of irony. The animal that would have been Spring-Heel Jack could have drowned in a sewer. You're right. Mm-hmm. Oh, that there's a good chance whatever animal it might have been is just in the bottom of the fucking river now. Because <laughs> that's where everything went. The Thames River. <laughs> They're gonna dredge out the Thames in like 40 years and find like a whole fucking silverback gorilla. Harambe. Or they're just gonna find like a demon skeleton still wearing his armor and just like the helmet. But then how's that? Dumbass jumped into the water and drowned because the steel was too heavy for him to swim with. Well, part of the different disguises that uh, the different animals is what made me think it was a group. Have you, any of you seen that movie? You're next. Uh, it's a slasher about a home invasion, and there's this group of murderers. And they all wear animal masks. That's kind of oh yes, yes, of. yes, yes, yes. Plus, I didn't mention it. I don't know how I forgot to put in my notes. Uh, the Marquis of Waterford, Henry, was arrested for causing a riot while he and his buddies were all wearing animal furs at one point. Huh. So that kind of lines up. But again, I still think those are cool. Like I said, you convinced me that it was paranormal, cool, cool, which is cool. good, which is interesting because I feel like the last time we did this, the Beasts of Jabodon, I was like, mm, it's just a wolf or something. Oh, there's also the theory he was a vampire, but I didn't want to get into that. I didn't want to get into it, but I thought about it. I really did. And I was like, do you know who was in London at that time? <laughs> Carlo Cullen. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> when Jane came but he didn't, to but he, but he killed. He, did, he never killed people, so. Supposedly. No, he never did. I thought he killed criminals. Like, no, that was Edward. But his dad, the guy who created him, had never tasted human blood. Cool. Um, Bring it back to Twilight, baby! I fucking hate that. Everything <laughs> in the world she can tie back to the fucking Twilight. But you know, if you want to go down the vampire route, I will point out this vague description. Kind of sounds like Nosferatu. I mean, yeah, long claws. Back to Spongebob. Yeah. Everything in the world is Spongebob or Twilight. There is no <laughs> in-between. It's like, it's like the literature thing about like everything goes back to Shakespeare or the Bible. With this podcast, it's Spongebob or Twilight. <laughs> <laughs> you can guess which one's the Bible in that comparison. <laughs> okay, so um, I guess we're just have to come down to the final conclusion. Is Spring Hill Jack real and a paranormal creature? Yes or no? I'm gonna go with yes, real, yes, paranormal creature because you convinced me. You read? Yes, evil demon fairy. And yes, cool, cool, cool. <laughs> so yeah, that's gonna bring us to the end of this episode. Uh, thank you all for joining us on the Cryptic Code. Uh, if you want more like this, follow us on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your good podcasts. Uh, you can also follow us at Twitter, at the cryptid code uh we post 
supplemental material from our investigations, uh, dumb memes, and occasionally we get into Twitter feuds. And uh, do you want to plug your show, guys? Yeah, sure. <clears throat> we talk about strange history. It's, it's called Strange History. <laughs> uh, we mostly dive into the weirder things that happen. Not necessarily paranormal, but sometimes we cross the line just a little bit. Uh, we just posted an episode... Friday about the Red Baron. Like the pizza? Not the pizza. Oh, the guy from Snoopy. Yeah. <laughs> that okay. one. Yeah. Uh, and you talk about Catholics a lot, right? Oh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we don't mean to. They just come up so often. There wasn't history. any of this episode. Was there? He was. He was a Catholic? I just didn't mention it. <laughs> Consider this episode <laughs> DLC for their uh, Red Baron episode. <laughs> to get the full story. I saw it in like, I found the church he attended and like what and his you didn't family tell me? went. I looked at it and I had like my computer up and I had my phone up and I was doing research and I saw that C word and I was like, I can't. <laughs> I can't in good faith do this for the sixth episode in a row. And then and the Swiss guard were holding a gun to your head and they're like, Mamma mia, unless you want to get executomatic excommunicated from my life. <laughs> I'm sorry, everybody. <coughs> um, that's a very, like, conspiracy thing. It's just like, you have all this information, you're okay, and you just go, delete. <laughs> But yeah, anyway, Strange History um, on Anchor, Spotify, Apple, all those, wherever your ears are listening. Um, and we're on Twitter as well. We're at Strange, the number four, history. We share cool history facts, and sometimes I go off the rails and talk about the everything else. <laughs> Today was raccoon, so if you want cute raccoon facts, you can go find us at Strange for History. You can tell when he's sleep-deprived <laughs> and has the Twitter password. <laughs> But thank you for coming. Uh, they have so many touch sensors in their little paws and they wash their own food. Oh my god. And thank you guys for coming on the show today. Thanks for having us. And why for everyone that for everyone at home. Uh, thank you for joining us again and tune in next time. But until then, stay safe, stay spooky out there. Mm-hmm.